Kia ora, ko Debbie Toko Ingoa. I'm Debbie Clark. Kia ora, ko Josie Toko Ingoa. I'm Josie Major. Welcome back to the Good Awaits podcast. Today we are jumping into the third part of our three-part series uh, here on the Good Awaits podcast about regenerative food systems and tourism's interconnectedness with food systems. We've had two episodes um, exploring this topic so far, firstly with Angela Clifford from Eat New Zealand, where we talked about the big picture of New Zealand's food story and how that is shifting and tourism's interconnectedness with that. And then in our last episode, we had two examples of where these kinds of food stories are playing out. Um, one example from Southland with Amy Young, who spoke to us about their uh, Southland Murihiku food tourism strategy and hearing about how this is playing out at a destination level. And in the second part of that episode, we spoke with Kai Silbury, who has the business Go Wild Apri on Reikohu Chatham Islands uh, and is doing amazing work in terms of protecting bees as she creates her freeze-dried honey product and also has a tourism business alongside that. So exploring what this what this interconnectedness looks like at a at a business level as well. So this is the third part of that series, and we're excited to bring you this story from another business owner, Nate Smith. Nate is a third-generation fisherman from Bluff. For our international listeners, that is at the very bottom of New Zealand's South Island. Further south is Stewart Island, and so Nate fishes the waters between Bluff and Stewart Island and around the bottom of the South Island. He is completely inspiring. He's on a mission to secure the wild seafood resource for future generations while also giving more New Zealanders access to our kaimoana, our seafood. He has secured funding from the government's uh, sustainable food and fiber program to replicate his model. And his model is really unique. He uses traditional hook and line uh, to fish and only fishes to order. So he has a hook to plate model and he focuses on seasonal fish uh, and introducing people to new species. So it reduces the pressure on the other species that we always typically eat. He's extended his passion uh, from his fishing business to launch Gravity Experience so that other people can learn about the hook-to-plate movement and learn about the wild food resource. So he is, as I said, really inspiring. I think you're going to love this episode. And we started off by asking Nate to tell us a little bit about how his model evolved and came into being. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, my story is a pretty, oh, it's a wild one. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I just kind of believe that um, it's something that was needed, um, you know, as we started to sort of get down the line of supplying, you know, restaurants on a weekly basis and um, starting to understand hospitality um, in New Zealand and and starting to understand the the, the broken food systems um, that we have in place currently, kind of just, you know, it was another motivator for me to to find a better way. Um, and in a sense, I guess we're not really, you know, it's not one of those things where we're reinventing the wheel. It's actually just kind of taking a step back and slowing down. Um, although things in my life during that time when we were morphing into, you know, the gravity replication and 
our food tourism venture and everything all at once, it, it, it seemed very hectic, but there was definitely moments um, in that that I could find sort of, you know, clarity. And it was in those moments that I guess I kind of developed um, the sense to do better. Um, and, you know, that's what this thing was about. It was about, you know, getting, you know, making things more accessible, more affordable, um, but at the same time, educating at the highest level that we possibly could, because I think that's, you know, one of the fundamental things that um, have, you know, in some way, shape or form created the broken food system. I mm. guess there was, you know, that need for growth and expansion as, you know, every business, you know, the question you get asked is how you're going to deal with growth and expansion. And, you know, my answer to that was probably quite significantly different. Um, it wasn't about, you know, getting more boats and taking on more crew and, and getting bigger and, you know, better and all of that kind of jazz. It was just kind of like slow down, do it small scale, empower more people. And I think that's the thing there. That's the key. It's that, that educational platform that we started and things like that. But I think that's the big part um, that, you know, we have kind of changed is we've morphed with technology and we've moved with that that time um and we've utilized it to educate um you know people who literally have no idea how their seafood came to get in front of them on their plate and things like that so that was one thing but i mean the main the main the very main the heart of this um whole thing was actually to try and you know give back to the wild food resource you know, and, and that's ultimately what I was trying to do was proving that we could take less fish out of the ocean um, but still continue to help our business operate. And, you know, and that's what we did and we, and we proved that. Talk a little bit about what, how your model is different, your fishing model, just for listeners. Give us a short description of how your model is actually different than a traditional fishing model. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, our model is significantly different to the traditional fishing model because – the traditional fishing model is basically um, extract, you know, so it's just, it's a percentage-based model. So in order for that to to work on, on scale or industrial level, they need volume to make it work. So um, you would basically leave port and catch as much fish as you possibly could, bring it back to the licensed fish receiver who you were dealing with or landing to, and then, you know, uh, you'd get a big check in the mail uh, a few weeks later um whereas our model is actually stripping that right back it's um we're only ever catching what's ordered so uh just to give you a quick example i would put out a, a bulk email to all of our customers and then they would see you know what season what sort of species of fish we were targeting versus what was in season at that time so the best quality fish that was available um and then once we would have our orders, we'd go and catch that. And we'd catch that down to like the last kilogram. So if we had like 350 kilos ordered that week, we would we would catch around 350, maybe 351 or 349, you know. So that's amazing. Yeah, I mean that was that was pretty significant. And I'm I am starting to see the magnitude and um, you know, that this yeah, I guess, yeah, magnitude is the right word for it, I guess. Um, now that I'm working with the so software team in South Africa and developing this app and, and molding it and shaping it to our own country, 
um uh, yeah i'm starting to see that it is really significant this whole catch to order thing and so that's like the crux of um the change for us is because we didn't want to be extracting heaps of fish out of the ocean we just wanted enough on a weekly basis to help our business run to provide consistent quality kaimoana for for you know new zealanders and i guess um you know our our main thing at, at that time was to go straight to the top so we needed to amplify our message as far and as wide as we possibly could and that's why um we started supplying the restaurants and the lodges and stuff that we did because i knew that they would help to share our message of what we were trying to achieve um and because we are such a small country i just think that you know so many people are you know caught up in in everyday living and and work and all that kind of stuff but when they're actually able mm. to sit down at the end of the you know working day or working week and go and slow down and have a meal at a restaurant and then have all of that information kind of you know presented to you at your table as you're sitting there it, it allowed you that space in that moment to kind of engage with the produce that was sitting in front of you and to have a greater respect for it and that's ultimately what i wanted to achieve was to to get people to respect the wild food resource because i think it's just you know over time um it's being devalued because we've you know us humans like to scale things up and um well some humans do like to scale <laughs> things up and um you know just extract until there's basically nothing left um and i just didn't want to see that happen especially not for the for the area that we fish in down here so yeah i mean that's that's kind of how we're significantly different is is the whole catch to order aspect and to to the best of my knowledge nobody else is doing that globally yeah i just i believe that what we've got we've definitely got the formula here to to make real significant change and to to um yeah. you know get this model off the ground you know presented to other countries as well um, if we can really mm. fix things in our own country first is the is the main goal. So we've got yeah, a two-year trial period to prove that. And um, yeah, <laughs> we won't be arrested until we can, can prove it. I've stripped it right back so that if you even have an inkling of an interest to be, you know, getting out of the current model that you're in, you know, um, that's what this is. It's making it extremely easy for anybody in New Zealand to be able to go out and supply Kaimoana to their community or their region. It's uh, it's yeah. that simple. So, I mean, the replication that we've got going up in uh, Kapiti and Wairarapa, um, it's quite specific. And it's why I've chosen to go to that area is because um, Mish is using an under six meter licensed vessel. So you don't need a lot of documentation that goes with that. So effectively, um, you could jump online onto the MPI website. You could register your little three meter inflatable with like a 15 horsepower outboard. You could register yourself and the boat as a commercial operation. You could go to sea catch a few kilos of fish, bring it back, pack it in these facilities, and it would, because of the software that we've developed with Abalobi, um, all your stuff will be visible anyway. So basically, by the time you got back to the beach or boat ramp, wherever you launch from, the money's already been transferred the fish for the fish that you've caught. Um, and then all you've wow. got to do is go and pack it and either drop it off direct or it would be picked up. Um, but yeah, like wow, that's what this is. We're trying awesome. to 
simplify it on the scale that you know we could have a lot of a lot of different fishes fishing into these little um, packing facilities. So, and giving people access, say, giving giving local people access to their local to getting fish from their local fishermen. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's that's ultimately what we're do, what we're doing. It's um to provide or well, yeah, provide regional community access. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of, you know, when I said before about stripping down what I'd learned, um, really trying really hard to be using like reusable bins and things like that. So if there, if there was a order, for example, say that Matt Lambert from Lodge Bar in Auckland ordered some fish from Morgan Hamilton at Stewart Island, yeah, we could send it, but we would need to get that bin back because that's one thing that I learned, you know, even though we were using biodegradable, reusable um, products, um, it's still, it's still a, you know, it's still a single use. So, mm, yeah. and, and that's, you yeah. know, another reason why I, I went with these guys that I'm doing, uh, the software development with, because they already have that in their, mm. um, you know, in their structure, it's all reusable anyway. So awesome. yeah, I mean yeah. like the whole thing is, um, it's there. I mean, even using the little, um, little bits of technology and Ooh. stuff and stay like uh, Uber Eats or Deliver Easy or whatever, you know, with the GPS on board. So that's, mm. you're the fisher. You can see exactly where each one of your boxes of fish are at any wow. one time so that you can let your customer know how far away it is and things like that. So just really, it's, it is simplifying it. But at the same time, it's actually quite complex when you start using the technology yeah. that we have our hands on. So um, yeah. I guess it's not simple, but but it is. <laughs> and it's also taking advantage of the technology that's available now, right? It's just exponentially, it can change things in, in such significant ways. So that's incredible. Yeah. I didn't realize you were working up in the Wadded Upper. That's my uh, neck of the woods, Nate. That's where I grew up. And um yeah, I can picture it in those little those little fishing communities out on the coast there. That's that's fantastic to hear. That's really exciting. Yeah, no, it is. It's really exciting. I just like I know that this is it's it, it's already worked. I already know that it works. Um, I just had to go yeah. down that you know that political bureaucratical path of funding <laughs> and everything. So um, yeah, I know I know deep down that it's fine. But I'm just kind of uh, holding my breath here at the moment just to see how quickly it takes off. I think it's yeah. going to be the thing um, that I'm kind of waiting for because ultimately what I'm trying to do is change quota management system for the specific makeup yeah. at least. I want to be able to have access yeah. to high-value products or what they see as high-value products. I want to be able to present that to every average Kiwi um, in this country, you know, that we should be able to go and buy a whole crayfish for $25, you know, like it, that, yeah. that's, that's where I'm at. That's my level of thinking. Sure. You've got your export yeah. market and it's high value and everything. That's fine. But it, it, there's no reason why we can't have two separate things, especially if this is only supplying domestic. Yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah, that's what I'm trying to prove over the next two years. So interfacing all of the regulatory stuff that we're required to do by government here into this app so that the data entry is really simple for your fisher. Mm-hmm. So he only has to enter the data once as opposed to, say, probably five or six times by the time we, you know, get monthly harvest and everything out. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's not us. That's not fishermen these days, you know. It's not yeah. – we don't want to be sitting around doing paperwork or digital work. It's like um, mm-hmm. we actually want to be 
connecting with nature every time we're out there. That's why we do what we do. Um, we don't want to be staring at a computer screen, yeah. even though that's a large part of the job when you're fishing, you're staring at a, you know, an echo sounder looking for fish and, you know, screens and everything. But at the same time, you can just walk outside the wheelhouse and, and you know, take a few deep breaths in and you're right back where you need to be again, you know, so. Well, I think that's that, you know, that piece around the, the model that's, that's so significant because it's your, your, your model is challenging the current system that on that, on that global scale, it's challenging the system of, of the fishing industry, of the distribution of even the way that restaurants do their business and even the systems of, of the ecosystems that you're operating within and, and how humans are interacting with those, with those ecosystems. Right. And I mean, I guess, um, a question is like why why is it important to work on that that systems level like you could um you could be just doing your business in this particular way but you're working across systems with your you know people that you're supplying to and with people overseas that you're talking to so why is it important for you to work at that at that systems level that's a great question um i think that I think it's just the way forward for this thing because if you have lots of small scale fishermen or artisanal fishermen working in this space, they are the ones that are going to, like it's in their own best interest to look after that wild food resource and to manage it to the best way that they can. And to date, especially in our own country, we kind of just rely on government um, regulators to kind of to do their thing. And I don't think that there's enough involvement from small-scale fishers. And I think that's what this is. It, it, it's important to me because it gives them a voice. It, it enables them to gear their transparency for their specific operation. Um, you know, everybody's got different ideas around things, but ultimately we're all, we all want the same thing, and that is, you know, we want fish in our oceans for future generations to come. Um and yeah, I, I think that's why it's so important to me. I think it's giving that voice back to the little guy um, because, yeah, they, they're the ones that are going to look after it because they're the ones out there on a weekly basis, daily basis, you know, all year round, they've dedicated their lives to working on the ocean and there's no one that would sort of, um, you know, give that much time and energy to it to the people that were you know, had invested interest, I suppose, that were that were out there. So they are the ones with the knowledge. But to date, they haven't been the one with the voice. It's basically been left up to, you know, like a $250,000 nice shiny marketing scheme from the bigger companies. And it paints mm. a picture of, oh, no, everything's all cool out there when actually it's not all cool. It's just, mm. you know, what those organizations want the general public to see because so they can get a sale out of it. And that's the other thing, you know, like it's always just about sales. Yeah. Sell, sell, sell. Um, we'll get some more next week doesn't really matter what's going on out there whereas this you know the way we're doing and it, it's not about that it's about connection and education mm. we all know we can't wait for regulators or government to lead the way right we know government is actually reactive and so what you're doing is one of those small people you're stepping up to lead the way um you're not waiting for the big boys in the industry to do it and so i think about tourism is made up of so many small operators 
and small operators who are doing amazing things as well. So it's an interesting comparison to see how you're actually shifting the whole system within the fishing industry. Um, and we're saying that we think we need a similar type of shift within tourism as well. And, and so we're asking this question through our podcast is what is tourism's purpose? You know, what purpose does it serve? And in your case, you've stepped into the tourism industry now. Um, so speak a little bit to that, like how you're using tourism to serve this larger purpose that you're, you're striving towards. Yeah, that's fantastic question again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I am, I'm learning a lot, um, in that space. But I guess the values are still the same. So with us moving into the to the food tourism space, it just kind of made sense for me to carry on with the same ethos as what I had with the commercial fishing sector. And I guess as soon as I stray away from that, my gut tells me to go back to, you know, what the what the crux of it is in the first place. And I think the crux of it for me in this food tourism space now is reconnection and 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 getting people to experience the wild you know like it's not it's so far beyond just a plate of food now <laughs> yeah it's more it's the education uh, educational experience that i'm trying to sort of provide on the platform of gravity mm -hmm. it just enables me to have that more of a intimate connection with guests to educate on a better level if they're there with me on the boat and they can see physically what i'm doing with a specific fish species or um you know the methods that we're using or any of that kind of stuff you know you're right there with me so it's like you're doing it yourself or you actually have the option to have a go at doing it yourself so yeah, I think that's what it is. It's just allowing people the platform to experience the wild or the nature, you know, um, as Mother Nature intended it, I suppose, and have that 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 very very small impact on the environment around you, but but educating to the to the maximum level that you can possibly achieve. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts of what our food tourism venture is. It's just yeah, allowing that platform to educate on a you know another level. Mm. Yeah, we've been talking a bit on this podcast about storytelling and sort of tourism's part of tourism's purpose being that storytelling. And I'm kind of hearing that a little bit in what you're saying in terms of this education piece and being able to share the stories about what you're doing and and how things could be different, right? Yeah, massively. It is. It's a huge part. Like I'm <laughs> I've been telling stories my whole life. <laughs> um, but you know, when when there's when there's truth and passion behind them, it's kind of an unstoppable force, you know, like there's so many inspirational people out there um on the planet doing awesome things and I guess um yep. it's kind of I've taken it upon myself to tell my story but also touch on history um you know from where I come from and then kind of give my hopes and dreams for the future to these people so that they can see the whole spectrum. Because I guess if it was just a, you know, a normal run-of-the-mill tourism operation, whether it was fishing charter or um, just say for argument's sake, uh, running a boat, a tourist vessel out of Milford Sound, where you just, you know, it's that industrial thing again. You just put as many people on seats as you can, um, and then you know you go and do the thing, you collect the money, and then you get another batch, and you know it's not really, you're not really experiencing that wild environment. 
it's more mm. so for us we want people to come in and stay in those places you know we want people to come and actually genuinely experience what we know as the wild um because if you're doing mm. those other types of tourist operations like i understand it economically and all of that kind of stuff but it doesn't make it right <laughs> It doesn't mean yep. that that's the be all and end all. There's there's you know there's so many other ways to interpret it, um, and I think that's what we kind of provide. You know, we want we want people to have that experience, so that later on when they're sitting at home or doing whatever they're doing, they can stop and reflect on what that was and actually go back to that space. So just mm. really slowing it down and connecting with nature is kind of our you know, another one of our key factors for our tourism operation is allowing people the time and space to slow down and just and and reconnect with like we're we're very fortunate we don't live in a city as such. So we're we're always in nature and and we know the benefits of that. So we're just kind of trying to um allow people to have that space to to be in nature and and, and just be nature as well, you know? Mm, that's beautiful. We wanted to um I think you've sort of already answered our last question, but, um, you know, we, when we talk about regenerative thinking or regenerative practice, it's so much about place and, you know, where we are and how that informs, um, the systems that we're a part of and the way that we operate within those systems. Um, so I, I mean, you've already spoken a little bit to this, but I'd love to hear, you know, how, how has your place, um, where you're from, informed your your business model and and the way that you, the way that you operate? Yeah, um, well, I guess it's history that shaped my level of thinking, the way that I think about things. I guess mm. I'm fortunate enough to be born in that era where, um things in the, in that industry were just kind of starting to take off and um yeah like that that's kind of where they were getting that growth and expansion thing happening so you know for us in the fishing industry down here it was a lot of small boats just like it was across the whole country and i guess that's what i've sort of touched on before is like enab enabling all of the smaller people um so that we can regulate it you know, on a daily basis, as opposed to the government, you know, regulating it or reviewing it every 12 months, because in this space, in the wild food resource, or that is Kaimoana, things can change so rapidly. And I guess that's, you know, that's, that's power, you know, having that knowledge is power. And I guess um, my, you know, my grandfather's fished and you know, my uncles and my cousins and everybody fish. So I was fortunate enough to be able to see what they would say, what the good old days were. So the volumes of fish were what the good old days were. So I seen that with my own eyes and I, you know, witnessed it all. And then as I grew up through my fishing career and everything and worked on different vessels and different methods of fishing and stuff, I noticed that it wasn't like the good old days anymore so i'm now in this industry with you know a handful of older guys that have been and seen and done the good old days and now they're kind of 
expressing their concerns about the future of it and the current state of it. Um, but, you know, and then that's what it was. It was like no one was really seemed to be doing anything about it. So I was like, well, I'm going to try and find a way to do something about this to, to kind of take a step back um, and go back to what it once was. Because I think there was a period of time, like across the board, not just fishing, that I think we had it pretty sussed. Um, and I guess it was around the time that we all grew our own food. We did all our own preservation of food. We had respect for the wild food. Um, and, and we weren't so reliant on that convenience of, uh, packaged food and, and portion food and things like that. So, I mean, that's just globally what's, what's gone on, you know, like it's just, it's out of hand. Right. So yeah it's just yep. finding a way back to a, a level balance of of sustainability or regenerative thinking i guess and that's what this is i mean right now um with our you know our food tourism venture if you if you stripped it back and and had the same mentality of thinking as it was when i was fishing i guess financially from a business perspective i'm probably selling my fish for you know it could be like three or four hundred dollars a kilo if you worked it out on that aspect of it because if i'm only taking say six blue cod for the eight guests that we have on board and they've paid x amount for their trip or their experience versus mm. me taking a step back and putting on my commercial fishing hat and having to catch 600 kilograms to generate the same amount of money, like the impact on that and the wild food resource itself is so significant. But then the financial gain on it is equally as significant. Mm. So it's like in that equation there is, yeah. is the way forward. Um, but, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I think that the way, the way has already been paved. We just like the shiny carrot, you know, like we liked the, you know, get in and, and, and generate as much money as you possibly can on the high value products. But that's the other thing is like, you know, it's all high value product to me. Anything that comes from the wild is, is high value product, no matter which way you look at it, because it is wild, you know, it's not regulated. It's not in, you know, between four walls or a fence structure. It's, it's, yeah. um, it's nature. And if you can slow down and connect with nature, I guess it will look after you. And that's kind of what's happened for us is we're trying really hard to look after it. And in the process, you know, we get to do cool things like this, you know, um, we get to tell our story and, um, you know, paint that picture of, of what we believe is regenerative or sustainable. Um, and we believe that very, very strongly, like it's in our day to day living, um, our choices that we make and, and all that kind of stuff so yeah i mean that's it that's just having having that historical knowledge is is what's really helped me through the um you know the, the past few years for sure conversation to end our three-part series about regenerative food systems on and and to be the last guest episode for 2022 as well for the good awaits podcast so we were so 
thrilled to have to have Nate on Good Awaits. And um, this is such an inspiring story. I think, you know, when we're talking about regenerative approaches, this really ticks all the boxes for me. I think um, a lot of the time a regenerative approach is about, we talk about it's, it's taking a step back, it's slowing down, it's reflecting, it's figuring out different ways forward and often returning to old ways of doing things um, and through that reconnecting to place. So all of those things is is what Nate is doing with his business, both in the fishing side of it and with the experience that he's offering and the way that those two things interact. Um, it's just such a perfect model of the way that tourism is interconnected with our food systems and how those two sectors can support each other to be regenerative. He did really talk a lot about reconnecting with place, right, and reconnecting with uh, the wild food ecosystems. Um, that's what his whole model is grounded in, and, and respect for that. I think that comes through listening to him. You can hear his absolute respect for the ecosystems where he makes his living and his wanting to bring people into that to to help them understand how we should be having a more balanced food system. And by giving them that firsthand experience, it allows them to really understand it up close and personal, and that intimate experience with him on his boat. Um, I loved when he talked about, you know, anything that comes from the wild should be valued, right? It should all be, uh, it's a high value product. Nature is a high value, uh, is high value. And we should, we should place value on nature and in protecting it. Yeah, his whole model is so deeply embedded in this respect for nature and respect for place and connection to place. And it's such a wonderful example because it shows that, you know, he's sharing that connection to place with the guests that he's bringing on these experiences as well. And as a result, deepening their connection to place um, through the, the tourism experience. We've talked a bit on on this podcast about redefining what growth means and what what if we were to frame growth in a living system sense as opposed to the traditional extractive capitalist sense and I love that Nate talked about growth for him is not about more fish uh, in fact you know he's he's about taking less fish out of the ocean overall but growth to him is not about fishing more it's about empowering more people to do it in a different way and I think that is such a wonderful reframe of what growth can mean um, and that that you can have this really successful business model that doesn't rely on just more and more and more extraction. Yeah, you said growth from a living systems perspective, right, is about the systems that we're within all gaining in capability, all, all flourishing and thriving together. And that's what Nate's doing. He talked a lot about there not being enough involvement with the small scale fishers in decision, in decision making in the fishing industry. And he, you know, part of his mission with this is giving some power, giving power back to the small fishers and giving them a voice, giving the little guy a voice. I love when he talked about, you know, he's a third generation fisher and he talked about all of these guys are out there. They're the ones out there doing the work. They have the dedication to the oceans. They have the knowledge, but they often don't have a voice in determining, um, you know, the industry standards or things like that. I mean, he was talking specifically about the quota management system. So his, 
his model is trying to empower other small fishers like himself and give that voice back to the people who are the ones out there taking care of the place. Yeah, it, it um I was reflecting on on this and and wondering what we can learn from that that kind of insight about the need for more of the little guys to be at the decision making table and what does that look like in in the tourism sector um because i think that there's a lot of the same perhaps a lot of the same challenges with with small scale businesses um not necessarily being given that power to make decisions about the future of the sector yeah that's a good point to ponder isn't it yeah and i think and i think on the other side of that to think about what the potential is in in sharing that power with with the little guys and what kinds of models or or ideas might emerge uh, when new voices are being being brought to that to that table. Yeah, it actually makes me think about the innovation fund that our New Zealand government has uh, released at the moment. And you know, small businesses really have a lot of uh, capability to be agile and flexible, perhaps more so than um, larger businesses. I think that we see a lot of innovation coming out of small businesses. So, so it will be interesting to see what comes of that. Where you know where the where the real innovation comes from in this process that uh, our government is, has put forth to to try and really transform our sector. Very interested to, to follow that as well. Uh, I think, again, you know, we keep coming back to this theme. It keeps keeps popping up, but but just the importance of storytelling in Nate's, in this conversation with Nate, I think he talks about the power of stories to transform mindsets and to create systems change, which I think is I love, I just have to quote him here because he said, when there's truth and passion behind stories, it's an, it's an unstoppable force. And I think that was brilliant. Not only does it beautifully tie back to our first episode of this season, where we spoke to Alina Siegfried and Joanna Hogan about the power of stories and, and why we need better stories and more stories in tourism. But it also speaks to sort of the power of his particular model. And he's, he's not only telling those stories as an individual on his tourism experiences, he's spreading those stories throughout the system and the way that he's interacting with other fishers and sharing the knowledge, um, through the restaurant providers that he's doing this, this model of, um, hook to plate with. And then they're sharing the story of the way that the fish came to be on that person's plate. And, and so it's, it's, um, trickling out through the system, the story. And I think there's so much power in that. I mean, as he says, an unstoppable force for systems change when those stories can sort of permeate in that way. I think for me, Nate is so inspiring because he talked about having been out on the boat with his grandfather, um, knowing, you know, talking with the old guys about the good old days and knowing what it was like and seeing the oceans becoming depleted uh, and and recognizing, I think he even said, no one else was doing anything about it. And so he felt compelled or called to do something about it. And I think this is a huge takeaway for me in this episode is that sometimes we uh, become convinced that we're only one person, we can't make a difference. We're just a small guy, how can we change the whole system? Uh, he has taken it upon himself to say this is worth trying to do because it's too important not to. Um, 
And so I think it's a good question for all of us to reflect upon. You know, when we look around at the systems that we're part of and we see something that needs to change, maybe it's an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, what won't happen if I don't step up and do it? It's It's been really inspiring and we just want to thank Nate again so much for joining us on the podcast. It was truly a pleasure to speak with him and to hear about his, his really uh, incredible, innovative business. And um, yeah, we're just really grateful for his time. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Great conversation. And thanks, listeners, for tuning in to this last guest episode for this year and this season. We appreciate you being here and we always love to hear your feedback. So please uh, click on the LinkedIn group in the show notes to add your feedback or uh, even better rate and review us because that really does help. We really appreciate that. This podcast is produced by the two of us, Debbie Clark and Josie Major, with the wonderful assistance from our audio producer, Clary Macklin, without whom we could not put out this wonderful professional product (laughs) (laughs) so true thanks clary and thanks to you listeners for joining us in this episode of good awaits it's great to have you with us on this journey